Okay, I'm playing the chorus. Okay. It's the clean tonic. Sorry. Can you hear the you hear the chord? It's the tonic of that chord. I can't pick out a single note on here. Okay. You you are my God. You are my King. You are my Master. My everything. You are my Lord. That's why I sing to you. There's a nice religious liberty talk there. Bronca must have put some work into that. That was very good. Where is she? I don't even... Oh, she, where is she? There she is. <laughs> yeah, I had the privilege of filming a documentary on religious liberty in Washington, D.C., New York City, and Philadelphia. I had the opportunity to tour the Capitol building with Barry Black, and I twisted his arm into taking me into a restricted area of the Capitol where the statue of Roger Williams is. I found out by accident that they had moved it from the Hall of Statuary. I thought, why such a prominent hero of, of American history, one of the most important of all figures, why is this statue moved to a hallway outside the Senate chambers where people just run hurriedly past it? Well, the reason was that the red marble base to the statue is radioactive. <laughs> oh yes, it's one of the most radioactive things on Capitol Hill, right there. And if you stood in front of it all day, you'd be violating the EPA standards for exposure to radioactivity. And um, so Roger Williams, uh, you may or may not know that the first Jewish synagogue was in Rhode Island Colony First, colonial charter having full religious freedom for all practitioners. Roger Williams, an independent Baptist of sort, and then just kind of a 
real independent uh, Christian. Uh, first Jewish synagogue, but also the first Seventh-day Baptist church in Rhode Island. And when they heard back in England that there were these Sabbath keepers, they have said, we heard that you have persons in your colony that do not keep the Sabbath. And he responded in writing, he said, you full well know that the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. <laughs> yeah, very interesting. So uh, let's get into our message for today here, if we, if we can, the history of King Manasseh. Sixteen years into the reign of good King Hezekiah, a son was conceived. His name, Manasseh, a name that would live in infamy. We first hear the name, the son, the firstborn son of Joseph. The name Manasseh means causes to forget. And Joseph named his firstborn because he caused him to forget his imprisonment and his captivity there in Egypt. But the name would take on a new meaning when it came to King Manasseh. It would uh, have the, the uh, representation that he would cause his people to forget their God, which is what he did. He followed in the footsteps of his grandfather Ahaz, and the Bible says that he seduced the people of Judah to commit more abominations than all the nations that... God had them destroy in Canaan. This is unbelievable, really, when you think about it. The list of atrocities are too numerous. In some ways, he makes bin Laden look like a choir boy. He instituted all manner of false worship, all manner of false devilish worship, worship, uh, worship, Baal, the false Christ, the storm god, god of the powers of the heavens, and so on. Here's a, a picture of Gideon tearing down a statue of Baal. Here, interestingly enough, is a triumphal arch dedicated to the god Baal from the temple of Palmyra, which is dedicated to the god Baal. But then this arch, interestingly enough, was destroyed by ISIS, but then it was reconstructed using computer technology and so on, and then temporarily erected right there on the mall in Washington, D.C., a arch originally dedicated to Baal. Some people thought this was highly symbolic. I don't know, but um, he worshipped the sun, the moon, the stars, powers of the heavens, built altars, in the two courts dedicated to the host of heaven, the heavens. And um, he dedicated horses and chariots to the sun god. Interestingly enough, this is actually a depiction of the Hindu sun god, which also has a chariot and horses associated with him. And we have this in Greek and Roman mythology as well, a horse-drawn chariot associated with the sun god. And one of the earliest depictions of Jesus, in case you didn't know, is the Christus Sole found underneath the Vatican 
underneath St. Peter's Cathedral, I think, there in the catacomb kind of area. And this has been verified as one of the earliest depictions of Jesus, but he's depicted as the sun god with the horse-drawn chariot. What is going on here? Well, as we see often with the people of God, as things, as kind of human nature, the default tendency is just to go downhill towards uh, uh, paganism and, and uh, tyranny and so on. And, and so we have this have, uh, coming in in the first centuries, um, particularly after the time of Constantine. Manasseh would name his firstborn son after Ammon, the sun god of Egypt. There's a depiction of Ammon from uh, some ancient uh, Egyptian ruins. And he would also put a statue of Asura, the goddess of fertility and immorality, probably in the most holy place. Think about that. This is an artistic representation of it. But chances are good that she was not so modestly dressed, if you get my implication. And um, there is the songstress, Beyonce, resurrecting the worship of the fertility goddess at the Grammys and um, in appearance as the ancient goddess Asherah. Kind of bizarre, isn't it? And he would uh, institute houses on the sides of the sanctuary dedicated to temple prostitutes. He practiced Satanism and sorcery, consulted and communed with demons. He filled Jerusalem with innocent blood. All who dared to resist his reign of terror defy his will would end up potentially dead. The Lord sent prophet after prophet to call to repentance the people of God who had fallen into this great grotesque apostasy. Perhaps the most prominent of all of them. Here we have the calling of Isaiah and the coal from the temple in heaven touched his lips and uh, for more than 50 years, Isaiah would call the people of God to repentance. One who we refer to as the gospel prophet of the Old Testament. His writings, perhaps clearer than any other, declaring the character and message and purpose of Jesus, especially his sacrifice. And it seems quite evident from tradition and best historical data, that Manasseh had Isaiah sawn in half while still alive, sawn asunder. The great prophet Isaiah. He passed his own son and the sons of Judah through the fire. Kind of a euphemistic phrase for offering them as living sacrifices to the god Molech. We can't even comprehend this kind of thing that passed as worship 
His grandfather, Ahaz, was actually the first one to start this practice among the people of God in quotes. In the Valley of Hinnom, which was formerly called Tophet. The word Tophet, a kind of an onomatopoeia, which uh, probably represented the sound of the drums being beat very loud. Tophet, Tophet, Tophet. They would beat the drums so loud that it would drown out the screams of the dying infant. They'd heat the hands red hot, put the infant in the hands of the idol, and then it would appear as if the child was being tossed into the flames below by the so-called God himself. And um, you know, it was very interesting, not too long ago, another pagan deity resurrected, not on the stage of the Grammys, but outside the Colosseum, which many people think is actually owned by and superintended by the Vatican. There's still some dispute over that, but they allowed it to happen right under their nose here. They, an artistic representation, they actually built a full-size scale model of the god Molech, the idol of god Molech, right there at the Colosseum. Here I am outside the Colosseum, getting in touch with my Roman ancestry. <laughs> no, actually, I don't have any Roman ancestry. It's all, it's all uh, British, actually, a little Scandinavian thrown in. But anyway, um, the Colosseum, you know where it got its name? It was named after the Colossus of Nero. Outside the Colosseum actually was a giant bronze statue of Nero as the sun god. And that's why it came to be called the Colosseum, because of the Colossus of Nero. Sun worship and the sun god seems to be supersaturated through all the world's religions, and, and Christianity was not immune to this, of course. This is Constantine and his family deity, who was Sol, the sun god. And you'll find a vast majority, like 99.9% .9 of all coins during his reign, all had images of, of, of uh, pagan deities, many of them of Sol Invictus, the sun god. And uh, so you have this sun worship coming in. We saw this in, in the case of the Christe Sole, where Jesus himself is portrayed as the sun god. Now, of course, eventually we would have the literal worship of images of the sun come into the church. And once again, the default setting seems to be to, um, to lead even the people of God into these works, these works of idolatry, dare I say, <laughs> uh, and paganism. And here... Uh, Pope Francis uh, seems to be angry for some reason. And I can only think that he's a little angry because some unsanctified photographer is taking a picture of him uh, raising uh, the literal creator who he has just had the power to create, his own creator, and will offer him now for worship and later perhaps as a 
sacrifice equal to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. All of this really not having anything to do with biblical Christianity. But the tendency also for human beings is to rise to positions of power and tyranny. Power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And we see this happening not only to the people of God in the Old Testament, over and over and over and over again, Israel falling into tyranny, persecution, and paganism and idolatry. Uh, here we have a depiction on the back of a papal medal which says, Genset regnum quod non severit mihi perbit. The only reason I could pronounce Latin is because I went to the class for dummies in junior high school, which was the class for Latin. Which means the people and nation that does not serve me will be destroyed. And the implication is that the one enthroned there, which represents the papacy and the popes, with the triple crown representing his reign over all creation, heaven, earth, and the lower regions, the infernum, will be destroyed if they do not serve him. Tyranny. Of course, Manasseh was one of the greatest, if not the greatest, tyrant that ever ruled Israel. Why did this happen in the Christian church? Well, I'm, not, I'm going a little far afield here. Forgive my digression. But um, here we have a pope who takes the name Pontifex Maximus, and below he has a picture of the goddess of Rome, Roma, the goddess of Rome, a pagan deity in full battle array with the expression Roma resurgence, meaning the revival of the Roman Empire. Once again, the default setting. Why? I've asked this question many times. Why? Can you imagine the Prime Minister of Israel pronouncing to all the populace, I've decided to take a new title. And uh, they say, well, what is the title, sir? I'm going to call myself Der Führer. What? This is the same title, of course, that Nero had, who burned Christians alive at the stake. Pontifex Maximus. And now those claiming to be the king of all Christianity are taking the same term and saying they're reviving the Roman Empire who slew innumerable Christians. It's just beyond capabilities for me to understand. Anyway, we're moving on. Forgive my digression. Here we have the area where Hinnom was, Tophet, and... Um, God would say, you shall no longer call this valley Hinnom or Tophet, but Gehenna, the valley of slaughter. Why? Because it would represent the place where God would judge those, particularly, peculiarly, who offered those infants as sacrifices to Molech, the lake of fire, Gehenna. If anyone had a place prepared for him in the lowest level of the lake of fire, it was Manasseh. The worst and most evil ruler that ever ruled the people of God.
Fortunately for you, fortunately for I, even Manasseh, even fortunately for him, this was not the end of the story. This was not the end of the story. In 2 Chronicles chapter 33, we read this. Verse 10. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they would not listen. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the captains of the army of the king of Assyria, took Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze fetters, and carried him off to Babylon. The king arose in Assyria at the age of 40. His name was Asher Banerpal. His brother in Babylon rebelled against him. He had him murdered, burned down his palace, declared himself king of Babylon as well. I've seen some beautiful reliefs at the Hood Museum in Dartmouth College where I did some training as a chaplain portraying the, the power of the Assyrian deities and, and of Ashurbanipal who had these made. And um, he was not a nice king. Long line of ruthless rulers that perfected the fine art of flaying. As a matter of fact, he would take the leaders of opposing armies and kings, and he would have them skinned alive. Probably the most painful thing that any human being could even go through ever, including uh, crucifixion. Manasseh was taken captive and carried off to Babylon went on a thousand-mile journey around the Fertile Crescent, and it tells us he was carried away with hooks. And the actual expression is nose hooks. With hooks in his nose, dragged him by his nose and other fetters a thousand miles and threw him in a Babylonian prison. Left him in a cell to rot for a while. Now here I must digress and um, tell you another story. A story about a fellow named John Horse Hawthorne. His nickname was Horse. I first met him in Potter Valley, California, Northern California. I was there uh, just previous to, to going to seminary back in 1990 of all years. Is it really that long ago? Hardly seems like it. Anyway. I was there doing a Revelation seminar, working with Gary Venden, too, who was doing an evangelistic series. And I met John Hawthorne, who one of his ancestors, his ancestor used to be the famous Nathaniel Hawthorne. And he owned this estate kind of swath of land that he inherited up high on this hill. And previously, he had lived as an outlaw biker there fence with barbed wire surrounding his compound and um, and I had met him after he was released from prison and came to my revelation seminar but he had run with outlaw bikers back in the day he built choppers built race cars and he had been involved in crime. He'd shot policemen on one occasion. He'd stabbed men, left them for dead in brawls. 
he was a bad dude. My first encounter with bikers was in this row house, three-story row house on the left, right next to what used to be called the J&R Bar, now called Jake's Bar, 50 years later, 1973. Now we're really going back into ancient history. They say if you can remember the 60s, you weren't there, and I don't remember too much. There I was, my best buddy's big brother and I were renting the right side of that row house next to the bar. We decided to have a keg party one night. And uh, guess who should show up for the keg party but the pagans? Their leader, his actual handle, was Satan. And the pagan biker gang showed up at our keg party, crashed it, came in, drank all our beer, took the stereo, cranked it all the way up to 10. You could hear it blocks on either side of us in that city. Nobody decided to do anything about it. Nobody called the cops. Cops never showed up. And at one point, one of the bikers squared off with one of the guys who came in for the party, sitting in the living room, and the guy took a bottle and broke it to defend himself, and uh, the biker switched his switchblade, and my friend, my housemate, stepped in, grabbed that bottle, and squared off with the biker. And the biker chicks behind this dude were saying, stick him, stick him. And uh, fortunately, my friend didn't get stuck, and uh, the biker backed down. But anyway, my, that was my introduction to biker gangs, outlaw biker gangs. Not good. Well, John Horace Hawth Hawthorne, just like those bikers that night who were hired in a kite on meth, had his own methamphetamine factory up there on the hill on his compound. And he thought he had the world in his hands, his kingdom up there. Until one day, federal, state, and county authorities converged on that compound with ATVs and helicopters and you name it, and they ended up dragging him off to jail and eventually to end up in San Quentin, the famous San Quentin, where he would do his bit. While he was in there, his kingdom would be plundered, just like Manasseh's kingdom was plundered. Everything was stolen. It could be stolen. Whatever was left was turned into target practice for automatic weapons fire. And when I toured the compound, I saw a lot of this. He showed me, <laughs> check, this, check this wreck out. Now we're going to read about one of the greatest miracles in all the Bible. Not the parting of the Red Sea or the stopping in the heavens of the sun, not the raising of the dead or the casting out of thousands of demons, no. Greatest miracle of all in the universe. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty, heard his plea, brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom, and then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. 
Greatest miracle in the universe, the conversion of the human heart. But we're not talking about any ordinary human heart. This is not a garden variety conversion here. This man was a virtual Hitler. There's the last picture taken of Hitler outside his bunker just before he committed suicide. This is the inside of the bunker there. And I've actually stood right over where that stands. There's a picture of the parking lot paved right over that bunker where they, a little plaque, nothing more. They don't want people worshiping the deceased tyrant. Uh, purposefully, they just paved it over so there's no real actual evidence he's under there, but he's there, under there, somewhere, his remains. Hitler. One day I was in a rare used bookstore in Toledo, Ohio. I was looking in the glass case, and I said, is that what I think it is? And the proprietor said, yes, it is. And Can I hold that? And he said, well, you better be careful, because it's valuable. And I held it up and looked, and there was Mein Kampf, but it had a signature. I said, is that what I think it is? Is that a real signature, not just a printed? He said, yes, that's a real signature. It's one of the ones he signed. There I was holding a book in my hand that Hitler himself had held. I had a parishioner in Ohio who became personally acquainted with Hitler. And um, he was a young man, very talented, solo trumpet player. Eventually he'd come to America and be a choir director in uh, Cleveland, Ohio. And, but he actually played solo trumpet for Hitler once and shook his hand. Later he was drafted into the Hitler Youth and he actually took a bullet right in his right hand and it caused it to look like that kind of, seized up a little bit with a big scar right in the center of the hand. So when you shake his hand, when I shook his hand, his crippled hand, I was shaking the hand that actually shook the hand of Hitler. Now, if you're thinking I have a morbid fascination with Hitler, <laughs> this is all just very coincidental. But Manasseh, in some ways, was worse than Hitler. All of the light that he had been given how deeply he plunged into demonic depravity and dragged all of God's people into a virtual hell with him. Manasseh, though, was greatly humbled, and he prayed, and God answered his prayer, and miracle of miracles, he restored him to his kingdom. Now I'm thinking of John Hawthorne again, who rotted for a while there in San Quentin. And uh, he received a call to go to the chaplain's office one day. And if you don't know, uh, if you're in a large high security prison and you receive a call to go to the chaplain's office, chances are it's not real good. The prisons I worked in, one was almost 3,000 inmates. We might have had 10,000 person, not 10, we might have had 10% of the population who was interested in any kind of religion. And usually you're, you're going to hear that it's going to be somebody dead or dying or in the process of dying. On rare occasions, it might be your godly grandmother who called in and said, could you please give a Bible to my grandson? But no, not likely. And so he went to the chaplain's office and sure enough, 
His house had burned down, and his only son was lying between life and death in the hospital in critical condition. And um, he went out on the prison yard and cried like a baby. He didn't have the nickname horse for anything. He was a big dude, formidable. Nobody messed with him. This is not him. It's just a picture of somebody lying there on the San Quentin yard. He didn't care if anybody saw him crying. A week later, he was in the chapel and gave his life to Jesus. Miracle of miracles. And uh, his story would eventually be on the show Unshackled, a radio program. I have no ever heard it. Dramatic testimonies of conversion stories coming out of Pacific Garden Mission there in Chicago. Very early picture of it. I had the privilege of going there once. There's a more recent picture of Pacific Garden Mission where they record these testimonies, broadcast them on Unshackled. He was given a chance to make it right. His kingdom was restored in a sense. I helped him clean up part of that compound and he turned the ridge, the ridge top that once was used for evil into a Christian summer camp for inner city youth. There he is at Sturgis. Some, he's, he's, uh, he's got a cross on his T-shirt there, but sometimes you just can't get the, the bike out of the biker's blood for some reason. I don't know why that is, but he's holding a trophy. He actually received a first-place trophy for that chopper he built from the ground up right there at Sturgis. Here he is, a lot of his Christian form, former some of them former outlaw bikers there standing on a huge redwood stump there in Northern California. Uh, recently, I just had the privilege of hosting the Christian Motorcyclist Association at OCC again. In 2018, first time I hosted them, I had them up on the Ozette ball field overlooking the mountains in the distance, one of the most beautiful places in any prison in Washington, I believe. And it was overcast that day. It was, brought, it was forecast to be totally socked in overcast with dense cloud cover. And their leader, who's not a gifted preacher, just a common fellow, common man who was kind of scared, actually, about public speaking up there, but he gave his message. And when he started to give his, he gave his final appeal, and he was making his appeal, what's it happened? But the clouds parted, and that ball yard was bathed in sun. And the men standing around the outside of it started actually saying hallelujah and amen. And then finally, he said, all right, now I'm going to pray, a prayer of acceptance for you men that came forward and so on. He gave an altar call, and he bowed his head to pray. And when he finished his benediction and his final appeal prayer, we looked up and the clouds came back and covered the sky. It was incredible. And uh, things happen sometimes, not by accident, obviously.
This is on John Horace Hawthorne's Facebook site. Quote from Charles Spurgeon, they will never keep me from speaking about Jesus, not now, not ever. After I die, they will speak about me speaking about Jesus. What a God we serve. Manasseh prayed a prayer. What, what a prayer. I wish I could have heard that prayer. It was not a namby-pamby, superficial, God, get me out of this mess prayer. Not a prayer with fancy these and thous and flowery language to impress the congregation with. Not a now I lay me down to sleep. If I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Kind of prayer? No, a prayer of raw faith. No presumption from the rock-bottom depths of repentance and humility. What a God we serve. He's not willing that any perish, even Manasseh. Think about it. We would have probably left him to rot in that Babylonian prison, tied up by his thumbs, letting the rats nibble away at him for a few decades. No. Jesus died for Manasseh too, even when he was at his worst. Think about it. Yep, think about it. When Manasseh was watching the sons of Judah roll into the fire with demons whispering in his ear and a grim grim on his face, Jesus died for him even then. Think of the worst thing you ever did. Don't think about it too long. There might be some PTSD associated with this thought. That's when Jesus died for you and died for me. There's going to be some surprises when we get to heaven. The first surprise will be, I made it. Second surprise will be, we'll be looking for some church-going folk that won't be there. Where's brother so-and-so? Where's sister so-and-so? Third surprise will be, these some people we didn't expect to be are going to be there. And I suppose God might even have a little explaining to do about Manasseh. Because of the love of God, we'll probably see Manasseh there. Well, maybe won't. Maybe we won't. Maybe we won't see him there at all. Maybe we won't see him because he'll be so close to the throne of God, the glory of God will obscure him from our view. Matter of fact, there might be a whole giant heap of formerly convicted felons piled up there too. Well, Manasseh was delivered and restored. He had a chance to make it right. He cast out all the idols. He restored the true worship. He brought back the Ark of the Covenant back into the most holy place. 
but there were still consequences that he had to bear personally. The evil fruit of his life was borne out in the life of his son, Ammon. And he, Ammon, did not humble himself before the Lord as his father Manasseh had humbled himself, but Ammon trespassed more and more. Then his servants conspired against him and killed him in his own house. Two years, only took two years, a short reign, mercifully, but he brought back all the former false worship, all of it. And then he was slain by his servants. Ammon's son, though, was Josiah. Think about this for a minute. Ironically, when you look at the genealogy of Jesus, guess who was in that list? Manasseh, the most wicked ruler that ever lived, is in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew. Josiah, his grandson, would go on to be one of the most righteous rulers that Israel ever had. Manasseh would live for six years after he was born. And I like to think that he sat upon Manasseh's knee while Manasseh told him about all the great things that God had done for him in forgiving him and restoring him to his kingdom. Josiah would go on to get rid of all the idols, all the idolatry, restore all the true faith and worship, even restoring the word of God and the law of God that had been completely lost and forgotten within one generation. Am I toppling an idol there? Okay. What happens when you get carried away, I guess? Go back. I am convinced, and inspiration is silent about this, I am convinced that Manasseh took full opportunity to pour the love of God into his grandson and instill within him the principles of faith and righteousness. And we have the same privilege. Think about it. Those of you that were grandparents, even, think about that. It was Manasseh's grandfather, Ahaz, that had the most powerful evil impact upon his life, resulting in him going, going on to be the most evil ruler. And it was Josiah's grandfather, Manasseh, who had been converted who had the greatest impact upon him. We have such a privilege and such an opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, both in word and deed and truth, with the young people who we have influence with, particularly those we are closest with, our children and grandchildren. Praise God, there is a rest of the story.
rest, the rest of the story. If God smiled on the prayer of the most wicked ruler that ever lived, can he smile on your prayer? You better believe it. If God forgave the man who knew the truth, was raised in a godly family, but who chose to plunge into the deepest depths of satanic depravity and drag the whole nation of God with him, can he forgive us? Can he forgive you personally? That's the more important. Can he cleanse you and I? If God delivered a man from a Babylonian prison, a man covered in the blood of thousands, even his own children and the prophets of God, can he deliver us from the prison of sin that may still bind and enslave us? In the words of our opening hymn, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoners free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. And all of God's people said, Amen. Sing our closing hymn.
Let us pray. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you really are a God of mercy and grace and love. If your love and your mercy and grace did not reach to the very depths of human depravity and despair and evil even, then you wouldn't be omnipotent, but you are. And you're all loving as well. And you proved that on the cross. And help us to have faith by your divine intervention in your all-saving and all-powerful love for us individually. In your name we pray, amen.